Welcome to the Rosenberg Roundup, a weekly podcast providing investors with key macro and market developments, insightful data analysis, and actionable ideas that are top of mind for the Rosenberg research team in the week ahead. I'm Dylan Smith, and this is the Rosenberg Roundup. We have a jam-packed show for you today after a heavy week of data in the U.S. We'll be recapping the Fed meeting from Wednesday, another Powell Masterclass. We'll be taking a look at the early real economy data from January, giving us a snapshot of how we've started the year. And we'll be taking a look, too, at the labor market data, including this morning's non-farm payrolls. This week's spotlight will be on the record divergences that emerge in the U.S. economy in 2023, something we've been highlighting aggressively, and how those will resolve as we look towards 2024. Our interview this week is with senior strategist Bhavna Chabra, who has just launched an outstanding new report on the equity market. As the S&P 500 hovers near record highs, we'll get some timely insight from Bhavana and her model. But first, let's kick off with the Week in Review. There was a clear message from Jerome Powell on Wednesday. That is that the Fed is shifting towards cutting, hikes are out of the question now, and it's just a matter of timing and then degree. After the last meeting in December, Markets got very excited about cuts coming as early as the March meeting after a perceived dovish shift by the Fed. And that was too excited in our view. The data wasn't quite there to convince the members of the FOMC that they could cut quite that early. And it was no surprise then that they've started the year by softly pushing back against that view in speeches and appearances. Powell basically finished that work on Wednesday, saying in the statement that the Fed would need more confidence that inflation is turning back towards its 2% target, and so they're not quite ready to cut yet. In fact, in the press conference, he said that he was confident that they would be confident, but they're not confident yet, so go figure. Good luck trading on that. Powell did highlight that six-month PCE inflation is already basically at 2%, but he wouldn't be drawn into specifics on what would lock in that amount of confidence that would be required for a cut. So reading between the lines, the message was fairly clear to markets, which was, don't rush us, your cut is coming, but March is a little too early. That said, it's not impossible if inflation plays ball, but we think May is a better base case. It also fits the average historical length of pause, which has averaged around 10 months. In classic Powell fashion, the press conference reversed the initial effect of the statement on markets. Yields initially went up on the release of the statement and were talked back down again during the press conference. And in fact, research shows that Chairman Powell is the only Fed chairman in the press conference era that has managed to do this consistently. Market implied pricing is now hovering around 30 to 35% for a March cut with a full cut price by May. And we think that's about accurate. Once the Fed starts, however, they'll have to go a good long way to get to the 2.5% estimated neutral rate. So the three cuts that the Fed has signaled in December and the six cuts priced by the market are not nearly enough. The pace of that decline, though, remains the open question. Buried in the press conference, there was also an important note on quantitative tightening and the pace of balance sheet reduction. As we previewed in last week's pieces and also in last week's podcast, we got the expected Fed announcement that they will be studying the matter, that the research teams are on it, and they'll discuss it in depth in the next meeting. That would be March, and we think the most likely outcome is that they will announce a slowing in the pace of runoff and possibly a time frame for when that slowing might end too. Essentially, this is good news for bonds. Uh, it's, it's marginally price positive, 
But the important thing is that it looks like the Fed will avoid sleepwalking into liquidity problems as they did in 2009 when they had to intervene to ease spikes in overnight rates when they over-reduced the balance sheet. And at least Powell isn't in the position of his counterpart at the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, who yesterday had to deal with a governing council that is shifting between hikes and cuts. So one of his members wants a cut, two of them still want a hike, and the rest are sitting in the middle, a much trickier position to be in publicly than Powell has to deal with. And incidentally, Bailey copied Powell's language directly, stating that they needed more evidence that inflation is settling around 2% before they're willing to go. The Fed might need more confidence on inflation, but we've started the year with very little to get excited about in the real economy. A series of Fed surveys on real activity in manufacturing and services, so think the uh, Fed Empire State Index and the Philly Fed Index, tanked spectacularly, and in some cases by record amounts in early January. That points to a big slowdown in, in both the manufacturing and services economy. It should have given us a weak ISM PMI print yesterday, but that was buoyed by what looks like a big inventory restocking, with new orders up significantly. Add to that some negative news from recent earnings releases, most notably UPS slashing 12,000 jobs, and GDP may have finished 2023 strong, but the start to 2024 is looking anything but. We also had employment data out this morning, and boy, was that a blowout. Total employment rose by 353,000 against an already optimistic consensus of 180,000, so almost doubling. Average hourly earnings were up more than expected too, and unemployment stayed at 3.7% instead of rising to 38 as expected. If there's one thing that comes very clearly out of this data, it's that a March rate cut is now completely out of the picture. But a few bits of context are in order for this release. First, the household survey companion, which tends to do better at turning points than the payrolls, showed employment actually down on the month, and the work week shrunk too. So firms are holding on to labor, but working their workers less intensively. Most of the job creation on the payroll report is still in part-time work, as folks find ways to make ends meet. So this was a good report on the headlines, but the labor data remains at best murky when we dig into it, and that's typically what happens around turning points in the economy. That wraps up a busy week. Next week, there's a chance for markets to relax and catch their breath with a very light data calendar indeed. We have the US Senior Loan Officer Survey headlining in North America. We'll have global and European PMIs, and we'll get some inflation data out of China too. It is a big week for earnings with about 20% of the S&P reporting, and that's gonna drive markets along with those ever persistent vibes. Today, we're spotlighting a special report we published yesterday afternoon. It's a US-focused follow-up to the global outlook that we discussed on last week's pod. The report highlights the extreme divergences in the macroeconomy and in markets that should usually be in alignment with the code over 2023, and we think they get resolved in 2024. We dig much deeper in the report itself, but here are some of the puzzles that we discussed. In markets, the S&P 500 is up 23% in 2023 after a big Christmas surge but the equal-weighted index lags badly and is stuck at early 2022 levels. Real GDP was up 3% for the year as a whole, but gross domestic income was flat. Consumers are tapping cards and dissaving in order to keep consumption going. Existing home sales were down 6%, but new sales were up 4.4%. That hardly ever happens. Labor markets look tight on the surface, and historically, layoffs are very, very low. 
but hirings are also down 7.3% as firms hoard labor. There are many other examples we discuss, but the overall point is that data tends to diverge around turning points. There are two ways out of these puzzles. One is an immaculate needle threat from the Fed where they lower rates just, just before things take a downturn enough to spur a continuation of growth. Or more likely, there will be a balanced restoring recession coming in 2024. All of the analysis reiterates and supports our conviction views on markets. We remain very bullish on bonds as sustained policy easing across the world continues. We think the US dollar will trade flat to weak as a result. We see lots of room to run on gold despite the highs on USD depreciation. And for those long only on equities, we love the pseudo bonds, utilities, consumer staples, select REITs, as well as smart positioning on the AI theme. For more on that and for access to our full global 2024 outlook, click the link in the description. And now I'm very pleased to introduce Bhavana Chabra for today's interview. Bhavana is a senior market strategist here at Rosenberg Research. She's a CFA charter holder with over a decade of experience as a macro strategist. She spends most of her time here looking at equity markets, covering both the developed market and emerging market space. Today, she's joining us to discuss her new research product, a report we put out earlier this week called What's Priced In? It's already getting rave reviews from our subscribers. So, Bhavana, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dylan. Okay, in one sentence, what is What's Priced In? So, it's a valuation tool that helps separate the fundamentals from speculation or optimism priced into equity markets. Okay, great sentence. So, if I'm understanding it right, this is a tool that helps us sort of using data disaggregate the fundamental signal in, in prices versus the kind of speculative animal spirits that might be driving the market. Exactly. That's what it does. Okay. And maybe digging a little deeper for the boffins out there and the boffins in here too. What's the theory behind the model and what's the kind of key methodology that you're using to develop it? So before I delve into the detailed methodology, I just quickly wanted to share a word about the usual valuation tools that we use, like price to earnings. They don't take stage of interest rates or cyclicality of sectors into account. What What's Priced In does is it discounts the future earnings flow to determine an anchor value in a particular equity security. This anchor value as a percentage of price is the known factor. The remaining part of the price, which cannot be explained by these cash flows, is called the residual value. This component measures the sentiment priced into an equity security. That sounds like something potentially very useful for anyone who's trying to understand kind of current market dynamics with the S&P hitting new highs recently. So maybe we should just spend a bit of time discussing how the typical equity investor would use this and flow it into their decision making. Definitely. Let's start with the S&P 500. If you look at the forward price to earnings ratio for S&P 500, it's at 20 times. It's only modestly higher than the long-term trend of 18 times. Looking at this, you'll feel that the markets are not that overstretched. However, when we look at the sentiment component of what's priced in, it accounts for more than 50% of the price. Now, look at this. It's highest since 2002, indicating the level of optimism in the S&P 500 is higher than what we saw at the start of the Great Recession, and it's just short of what we saw before the dot-com bubble burst. Okay, so the, the model's telling us that, you know, if you looked at the traditional valuation metrics that everyone always quotes, PE and so on, 
we'd see a maybe slightly overvalued market, but nothing to be particularly concerned about. But the breakdown that we're able to do is to say, actually, the fundamental levels don't support that. And what's driving the price really is a huge amount of speculation. Exactly. That's what it is. Okay, awesome. And if I was an investor, I was, I was planning on kind of making some bets in the market based on, on the model. How would I use it? What would I need to think about? What would I need to add into my analysis to make sure I'm using it properly? That's a great question. So like they say, the markets can, can remain expensive longer than you can remain solvent. So while valuation has an inverse correlation to the level of returns, it should be only one of the important factors taken into consideration. We recommend looking at five factors, which are growth outlook, earning revisions, conventional valuation, price composition based on what's priced in, as well as headwinds and tailwinds facing any sector or economy. So based on these five factors, we believe you could have a more holistic approach to investing. Excellent. It's definitely my experience that markets can stay expensive way longer than I can stay solvent. I know that you've uh, sort of copied this methodology or repeated this methodology down to a very fine industry um, grade. So I know that a lot comes out of this report on kind of which sectors are, are looking good and which ones aren't, in addition to the whole market. So maybe we start with a few that you really like and you really want to highlight. So let's start with sector level. We look at 11 gig sector. So based on these factors, we see pockets of value in real estate, utilities, and consumer staples. Whereas we, what we would recommend the underweight stance on is consumer discretionary, healthcare, energy, and materials. If I was to break it down to an industry subsector level, we like healthcare REITs, industrial REITs, tobacco, food retail, broadline retail, construction equipment and heavy machinery, and most of the subsector of utilities. That's what we like. Which part don't you like? So what we don't like is home improvement retail, auto manufacturers, consumer electronics, biotechnology, pharma, tech hardware and equipment, ground transportation, and metals and Okay, that's quite a list. I think, uh, I think our listeners will have to head over to the link in our description to recap that and to get the full value behind the report. That will link you over to our website. But for now, I'm just going to thank Bhavna for joining us today. Bhavna, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. Before we wrap up, let's take a quick trip over to Canada Corner. And quick it will be because it was a quiet week in the Great White North. The only data point we really had of note was November monthly GDP. It went up a little more than expected. But that was mostly because of a bunch of supply coming back online. We had the automotive strikes in the US and Canada, which happened in October, giving November a bit of a bump when everyone went back to work. The St. Lawrence Seaway was closed for a time in October and reopened, again, giving a bit of a bump to the output numbers. And a series of refineries reopened too, supporting the chemical industry output. The flash estimate for Q4 came in at 1.2%. That doesn't sound like much, and it isn't, but on recent history, that's a massive surge by Canadian standards. We'd caution, though, that December will probably be subject to the same weather and seasonality issues that we saw in the U.S. data, so there's a lot of risk around that number. Last week, we highlighted that the BOC, rather than targeting inflation alone, is basically going after the housing bubble, making them more hawkish than the activity and labor data would otherwise suggest they would be. Just to note, we've got very little pushback on that view, which has given us even more confidence that monetary policy and the housing market are completely intertwined in Canada. The market is now pricing the BOC cutting just after the Fed, and we think that's right. 
On that note, it's time to wrap up. I'm Dylan Smith, and that was the Rosenberg Roundup. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Rosenberg Roundup. For more information on our work and to take advantage of a free 30-day trial of our research, please visit rosenbergresearch.com. Make sure to tune in to our next episode for more insightful analysis on the macro and market landscape. Rosenberg Roundup is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute legal or professional advice, nor is it an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or derivative. Any views expressed by the participants of Rosenberg Roundup are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, beliefs, or policies of Rosenberg Research. 